Before I start in our sermon series today, I just want to say I'm really excited for this church plant in Chester and for Joel and Nikki and what they're doing, leading people and others who are here with them today, worshiping with us. That is a, a fantastic thing, and, um, and you really should. If you live in Chester, you should be asking, why shouldn't I be part of that? Um, if that's what God's doing, why wouldn't I want to be a part of that? Um, kind of fits in with the sermon series that we're doing here in Acts that we started last week. Have you ever had somebody say to you, um, hey, you'll know it when you see it? Like the first time maybe you drive out west and you're like, oh, the St. Louis Arch. Will I be able to find it on the way? Yeah, you'll know it when you see it. Right? It's pretty evident, pretty obvious in that way. Um, Jesus told his disciples, his followers, to wait for the Spirit. But how would they know when the Spirit had come? How would they know? Well, Acts chapter 2 tells us a little bit about that. We're going to look at a good part of Acts chapter 2, but I'm only going to read the first 13 verses right now. So follow along with me. This is Acts chapter 2, the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be Tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthenians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya and Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They've had too much wine. Spirit of God, living and active, would you give us both understanding into your word and the experience of knowing what it means to live according to it? In other words, don't just give us information today, Spirit of God, but move us to action. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I recently watched a show called Clickbait on Netflix. Um, you might want to watch it, maybe not. I don't know, that's kind of up to you. You can look at it. But one of the things about it is it's kind of this drama that's kind of intense about somebody who gets kidnapped. And they get kidnapped and, the, and then posted on the internet, on social media, holding a sign that says, once five million views are hit, this person's going to die, be killed. And so it's this intriguing story of, well, what has happened to this man? Who has kidnapped him? Is he alive or not? And how is social media and this viral stuff playing into either true information or false information about what's happening and the investigation? And so it drew me in because it was one of those great twisting puzzle kind of things I love. And I was like, oh, what's going on? And finally, as it comes around to the end, you get to there and you're like, oh, now I see. And you have that aha moment. And you're like, oh, that's amazing. Yes. 
I love those aha moments in movies. Maybe you do, too. This is a series, but... Um, Sometimes those aha moments come and you're, and you're proud because you're like, yes, I figured it out. Sometimes you didn't figure it out. And the aha is, wow. The amazing ability of the writers, the directors, and producers to put that together in such a way that had me twisted and turned around. And they fit all that together and you start afterwards thinking about it going, whoa, did you see how all that came together? And there's other shows that probably even do it better than that, but that reminded me of that, and I guess I bring that up for this reason. Today, my hope is that you have an aha experience, that you are amazed, not at me, but you're amazed at the author, the director, and producer of the plan of redemption, and that you need an aha experience intellectual moment, yes, to see it, but you also need an aha moment of the heart captivated by the person of God. So the first point that I want to talk to you about today is this. I want to strengthen your faith by seeing how God accomplishes his plan. So you're going to have to think with me a little bit here, and we're going to look at some different verses, and I'm going to try to do my best to educate you on things that you may or may not be aware of in Scripture. And some of this goes back to a sermon series I did earlier this year in March and April um, where we looked at Exodus called Trusting God's Story. So I want to start asking a question about Passover. Okay, what is Passover? It's a Jewish holiday. Yes, it is a Jewish holiday. Good answer. Well done. Okay, you passed the test. It's a Jewish holiday that is instituted by God for His people when they leave Egypt. After the plagues, the last and final plague is the Passover where the angel of death is going to come and kill people, the firstborn unless they have made the sacrifice and put blood on the doorpost of their house, and then they are spared and delivered. And that becomes a lasting ordinance for them to celebrate Passover. Okay? And you may know also, you probably know, that Jesus eats His meal, His Passover meal, with His disciples right before He is arrested and crucified and executed the blood of the Lamb, the Passover Lamb, so that his disciples may be saved. Now, I want to show you this in 1 Corinthians 5. This is exactly how Paul understands it. Put that verse on the screen for us. Paul says, Get rid of the old yeast that you may be new, unleavened batch as you really are, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So Paul is saying, and clearly Jesus was implying at the moment, that he was the Passover lamb. The next thing that happens after Passover is called first fruits, and it happens the, the, after the first Sabbath day at the end of Passover. So you come to Passover in the Jewish holiday, in the Jewish system, right? And the seventh day of the week is the Sabbath. The next day after that, the first day of the week would be when they start celebrating first fruits. And it's the celebration of their spring harvest that is just coming. And the first thing God asks them to do is as they're getting their first fruits, the first grains, He's saying, you need to give that to me. Like, wow, I just got this. He's saying, yes, you're going to have to trust me. That I am going to be the one that is going to sustain your life. And so, this is what they do. They've been delivered from judgment coming out of Egypt, and now they have to say, okay, God, we trust you to sustain us. Now, you may remember that after Jesus was arrested on Passover and crucified, what day was it that He rose from the dead? The first day of the week. Sunday, the day after that Sabbath. Fulfilling the first fruits. Again, notice Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 15. Put that on the screen. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. In each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then we who come, those who belong to him. So Christ is the first fruits. Now, why am I telling you that? Because then what happens after Passover after, is called the Feast of Weeks. And it happens seven weeks after on the 50th day. And in Greek, the word 50th is Pentecost, which is what we just read about in Acts chapter 2. And so 50 days after Passover is the great celebration at the end of the spring harvest showing that God had faithfully poured out all His blessings on His people. It's also when, historically, they celebrated the giving of the law to them that happened at Mount Sinai after they left Egypt. They came out, they crossed the Red Sea, they came to Mount Sinai. And this is where you have to go back and listen to the sermons before as we talked about trusting God's story. But what's happening there is this picture of marriage. God has said, I will go and get my people and I will rescue them and I will bring them home to live with me. And at Mount Sinai, they basically have a marriage ceremony in which God says, okay, you're going to be my people, let's exchange vows. Here's the Ten Commandments. Now I'm going to take you to live with me and you're going to Israel, this place where I've shown you to live, and you're going to live there as my people in honor of my name to make my name great and known among the nations. Let me just extend this parallel a little bit more in how Jesus is fulfilling all of the Old Testament. At Mount Sinai, when Moses ascended Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 9, God met him there with fire, a violent windstorm, and a divine tongue speaking from heaven. He descends Mount Sinai with the law of God, the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone. Christ had recently ascended into heaven while the people of God waited at Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And verses 2 and 3 that we just read tells us that God comes to them in a violent wind, descends on them with fire in the form of tongues. You'll know it when you see it. Any Jew, and those people gathered here at Pentecost are Jews, they know what is being said is that this is the new Israel. The new covenant that is continuing God's story. And we are the ones experiencing it. At Sinai, the people rebelled took Moses too long to come down from that mountain. Like, what are we going to do? I don't know. Let's make a new God. Okay, good idea. And that's what they do. And that day, 3,000 of the leaders of that rebellion were cut down by the sword. And at the end of Acts chapter 2 that we didn't read, but let me read it to you right now. There's no verse to put on the screen for this. It says this in verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized... um, And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And right before that, it says they were cut to the heart. What Luke is telling you in the book of Acts is that Pentecost was recognizable. And more than that, that it is the very continuation of the people of God from the Old Testament forward. And I hope you're going, aha, wow. God does have a plan. He didn't forget. And He is carrying it out. Because that's precisely what God is doing. Not only that, 
And I have very limited time, but we could go back to the Tower of Babel, which is another type of this. Because at the Tower of Babel, you remember, which is before the Exodus in Egypt and all that, well before that, is when the people are saying, we're going to build a tower to God, we're going to, we're going to do this our way, and we're going to have our own gods. And God says, no, I told you to spread out over all the earth, and because you didn't, I'm going to confuse your languages and make you spread out. And that's what He does, so that they go spread out over all the earth. And now here in Acts chapter 2, what's happening the people from all over the nations, Luke tells us, are coming back together and they're hearing now in their own language as God comes and says, I am calling people from all the nations back to me. More than that, He's fulfilling the promise He gave to Abraham too that that through you, you will be a great blessing and through you, Abram, all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. You see, God's mission has never changed. It hasn't. And I hope that strengthens your faith that God has a plan, is accomplishing that plan, and it is not going to be stopped. His mission hasn't changed. It's going out to every nation so that they will know God, honor God, and live in a place that He prepares for us. So what has changed? Well, a lot of things have changed. And today we're just going to look at one small sliver aspect of that that is an important change. And it's the second thing I want to talk to you about today, and that is this. I want you to be filled with the Spirit of God and actively participating in His work. There's two ways I want to talk about this that come out in this text, I think. Um, One is the indwelling of the Spirit, and the second is the empowering of the Spirit. And so... Those two things are important for us to understand and they are different and distinguished and we don't have lots of time so maybe you just ask me questions afterwards too if you want and so forth. But let me talk about the indwelling of the Spirit. In the Old Testament, how did the people know that God was with them? Well, God made His dwelling among them, right? They come out of Egypt and God instructs them to build a tabernacle. And the tabernacle is to be set in the middle and then they camp all the way around it so that they know that God is in their midst. And the reason they know that is because He descends either by fire or or a pillar of cloud or smoke and descends on the tabernacle on the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. So that they know that God's presence is with them. And when they set out, they take that Ark and that Ark leads the people. So that God's presence leads the people. The prophets would tell us later in the Old Testament that We should look forward to the Messiah, the one who is Emmanuel, God with us. At Christmas, what is it that we celebrate? Of course, that Jesus, the very Son of God, comes in the flesh to dwell among His people. God always is giving signs to His people that yes, I am with you, I am among you, and I will dwell with you. I am coming to you. And here, in Acts, It is that fire that descends over people's heads, just like it would have been the Old Testament over the temple or the tabernacle, but now over each individual, signifying the Spirit of God is indwelling, coming on believers, living with them, living in them. The Spirit of God dwells within each person who trusts Christ as their Savior. This is pretty clear in in verse 38. Peter makes this clear. Let's put that on the screen, if you would, because we didn't get to read that far in the text. So Peter, this is after they're cut to the heart, and they say, what must we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
You see how he's linking that? Every believer who trusts in Christ will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And so, as you become a Christian, you are indwelled. God's Spirit lives in you. In verse 40, he tells us that Peter pleads with him. He goes on and pleads with him again in many ways that they would believe that they would turn back and be saved. And so today, I am pleading with you. Turn back to God. If you've walked away, if you're listening on the live stream and you're thinking, man, I just don't know about this Jesus stuff and this Christianity. God knows. He's had one plan from the beginning. And it might well include you. How do you know? Come back to God. Repent. Just like Peter said. For the forgiveness of your sins. And the Spirit will come on you. I can tell you this, that that your plan to build your own little kingdom in the next, whatever that plan is for you, five years, ten years, twenty years, thirty years, will likely succeed, but not be satisfying. It'll be happy, it'll be good. Like, I'm not saying it's bad. But your attempts to build your own little kingdom and say, oh, I've gotten everything I want out of life, in the end, though it may produce some happiness, it won't ultimately be satisfying. Why? Because you were made to live for so much more than that. And for so much longer than that. You see, everything that you build here is in the material world is material and temporary. God's kingdom is forever. It's eternal. It does not end. Right? And He's saying, I'm getting married to you and we're living together forever in perfect paradise. So I'm saying, receive that. Come back to God. And the Spirit will be with you. In Ezekiel chapter 36, do we have that verse? I may have skipped over it. Let's put that verse on the screen. The prophet says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see what's happening here? The prophets knew it. They were saying, this is what we want to happen. We want God's Spirit to come. We look forward to it. It's what God is saying that He's going to do. To dwell in you. The Spirit to live in you. To move you to do what is actually good. And what is following in God's ways. You know, a question that that many of you ask me a lot, that I've asked before of myself, right? Is, Is God really with me? Because there's times we feel so distant. So dry. Like there's nothing there. Like we just need oxygen to survive. And what the scriptures are telling you is that though that feeling may be real, it is not God who is left because his spirit indwells you, his spirit is with you. Always with you. God has always been present with His people in different ways. It's so much more expanded in the New Covenant as the Spirit comes and dwells in each of you. So yes, by faith, as you are united to Him, God is with you always. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Even as Mariah was reading in our confession, right? Those who come to me I will never cast out. Because He lives in you. He is not going to cast Himself out. But the second thing I want to talk to you about here, the final thing, is this empowering of the Spirit. There's an empowering. Well, empowering for what? 
Well, do you remember from last week when we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he told them to wait for the Spirit, and then you will what? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. The empowering of the Spirit for the people to come, for the people, is so that they will go and be witnesses to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God for them on their mission. They change from timid people, scared, running for home, hiding out in places, gathering together, going, what are we going to do? To the boldest people on the face of the earth who go do all kinds of things, spreading the name of God everywhere in the face of opposition and persecution, dying for it. Because the Spirit has come upon them and empowered them. Even Moses talked about this in Numbers. Chapter 11. Numbers is in the Old Testament, by the way, way back. Numbers chapter 11, verse 29. Put that on the screen if you would. Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on them. Right in the Old Testament, the Lord did use a spirit, especially on the prophets and through the priests. But he's saying, I wish he would put his spirit on everybody and empower them. And what's happening in Acts chapter 2 is the spirit is coming on everybody, that everybody is empowered by the Spirit, to participate, be actively involved in the mission of Jesus that goes to the ends of the earth. And you may think, I don't know, or maybe you just feel apathetic or lazy and you think, yeah, the Spirit-empowered stuff, yeah, maybe that's for the preacher, but not me. That's not true. That's not what the Bible says. I mean, I hope the Spirit empowers me. I need it. I pray for it desperately. But it's not only for me. If you think that way, your thinking is far too small because the Spirit has come on all Christians. John Miller wrote a book called Outgrowing the Ingrown Church, and he writes this. He says, The essence of the threat to the modern congregation is its tendency to despair and defeat because it has redirected its faith toward its past or to human resources rather than to the promises of God with their focus on the power of the Spirit to revive us. The single greatest thing you and I need is the active Spirit of God working in our lives and through us toward others. It trumps every human resource there is. It's more important than politics. It's more important than anything else. Because without the Spirit of God, the mission cannot be accomplished. We can think about all the resources we need and all the things we're going to do in our lives or in planting churches or to reach foreign mission fields. And none of those are accomplished unless the Spirit of God is actively at work going ahead of people and in people to redeem the people of God. So do you pray for that? You know, the other thing that means here is that missionary activity is not so much a work of the church as it is the church at work. It is the church's mission. It's what they're to be about. It's what we are to be about. If you think you have to get someone to the pastor, to the Old Testament priest or prophet, in order for the Spirit of God to show them something, you're short-circuiting the Spirit and saying the Spirit doesn't work through me. Now, you, you might need to do that also But don't deny that the Spirit is working in and through you. You talk to people. You tell them about Jesus. If it's indeed good news to you, then you know it. You share it with them. 
You start it. Yeah, and then get other Christians involved. Help Get others to help. Pray. Tell your story. Tell their stories. Because the Spirit works through Christians like you. As my son would say, facts. Will we be a people that live with generous faith? With the indwelling Spirit and empowering us on mission? Yesterday, my wife Michelle and I got to go uh, with our youngest son to um, a Hokie football game. Went to Lane Stadium. It was the first time we got to Lane Stadium for a football game, which was quite an experience. It was a lot of fun. It was also a a historic day, obviously being the 20th anniversary of 9-11. It wasn't a big game. It was against Middle Tennessee State, but it was a special day filled with pageantry as the Corps of Cadets marched and took the field. Alumni from the Corps of Cadets, um, a flyover, uh, and the pilot was a graduate of Virginia Tech. Um, songs, music, bands, new cadets taking their oaths to the United States. A moment of silence as we remembered the tragedy and the loss of 9-11. It was a special day. After the band had stopped playing, the players are ready to enter the stadium, and all you Hokie fans know what song comes next. Enter Sandman. All right? And it starts coming over the loudspeakers, and everybody, 60,000 people, start jumping up and down and singing along as the Hokies take the field. And it's an amazing spectacle to see, I tell you. Um, it is fun indeed. And that song is meant to be sung to both intimidate the opponents and to empower the players. And it's an awesome experience. Taking 60,000 screaming Hokie fans to empower the players. It's pretty cool. But not as cool as the one Spirit of God it takes to empower you. More powerful than 60,000 screaming fans. More real, more enduring, more alive. I'm going to leave you with these takeaway questions. We can put these on the screen. You know, if you think God has fallen asleep and can't accomplish His plan, then Maybe you haven't had that aha experience yet of what he is doing. And so maybe you need to ask yourself this first question. Does the Sandman still have me asleep? Pray for spiritual waking, for the aha experience of knowing God's saving grace. Believe it today. Make today the day that you believe. Say, God, yes, forgive my sins. Put your spirit on me. Dwell with me and don't leave me. Second thing is, if you think there's more power from the fans at Lane Stadium than there is from the Holy Spirit, you've been drinking too much. Seriously. Just like fans, right? If you think mission activity is something a few people do, then you are missing out on the aha experience of sharing the good news of Jesus with others. So my question for you is, who will you share it with? It's not your responsibility to change them. Spirit of God does that. It's your responsibility to tell them about it. Who will you share it with? Let's pray. Spirit of the living God that cuts people to the heart, 
would you stick us today? Those who may not know you, stick them that they might know you today and pray, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Make me clean. I want to know you. I want you to dwell with me and I want to live for you, with you forever. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, would you stick our hearts too? Help us to admit that we don't often live like we're empowered by the Spirit, but will you actually empower us to live, to walk in your ways, and to be involved in your mission and telling other people about you?